0: So Tara, tell me, tell me this, because I'm not a DJ like you are, and I think it's really cool that you DJ and get out there and play your records and whatnot, but I want to know, how do you get in the zone before a show?
1: Huh, that's a good question. I feel like it depends on the gig. If it's a a dance night, a, a dance party that I'm DJing, I will listen to really upbeat music and get, you know, excited, hyped up. Yeah. Uh, but if it's more of a vinyl kind of vibes night, I might listen to, you know, just my favorite classics or something. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, hi. Welcome to the store. Take a look around. I'm Tara. This is Natalie. We'll be back here behind the counter. Let us know if you need anything.
0: So let me know, do you prefer like the more energetic dance party? Or do you like the more chill record
1: hmm.
0: kind of shows?
1: I think I like more club club nights actually. Not and not the classic sort of dance party because I do I do kind of all the different kinds of dance nights. You know the classics, the Whitney Houston, mm-hmm. Madonna, Adam JQ, and then some more club like electronic music type things. Those are my favorite. And I feel like uh, they're my favorite because I don't get to do them as often. Right. So I really enjoy going deep, deeper with the club music. I love your 80s dance parties. They're so fun. They are a lot of fun.
0: (laughs) And I like to see you up there having as much fun as we are on the dance floor.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. Oh, hi, look who it is. Hey,
0: It's our friend Chris DeVoe. Welcome.
2: Hi, thank you.
0: How's it going?
2: It's great. It's going good. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Got DJ, DJ record producer extraordinaire (laughs) in the record store today. Looking for some uh, new vinyl for your shows, maybe?
2: Yeah, or just looking for some uh, things to sample from. Do a lot of that too.
0: (laughs) Cool. Cool. We haven't seen you in a long time, but I know that you have worked personally with both Tara and I.
2: Yes, that's true. That's true. I've uh, I've played one shared dJ uh, gig with Tara, and I've recorded a couple of songs with you, remixed one of your songs. Um, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think they turned out pretty great.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I know. I, I was bummed I couldn't stick around for your set because I was also going to a show or a festival or something that same day, so I had to run pretty fast once my set was was finished but one day i'm gonna catch one of your it's sets. The same here
2: i was trying to get there earlier to, to catch you and then i by the time i got there you were already you're already gone <laughs> it was a beautiful day though it was a it was a great um yeah it was a really good experience like i love playing out, out outside
1: me too when weather's like that it was yeah. perfect weather
0: i was just asking tara like what what her ritual is before a show or how do you get in the zone before a dj show
2: Well, I think for me, it just depends on uh, similar to what Tara was saying. I guess it's kind of like how it's similar to what what the environment is like, what the venue is like. And also what the medium, if I'm playing just vinyl, I have to like listen to music kind of while I'm picking out my crates because if I don't, there's only one chance. You can't like decide, oh, I, I'm missing that record that I want to play, but I don't have it here. Because with digital, you can just have like a library of music to pull from, but when you're playing records, what you have is what you have, and that's it. <laughs> you can't go home and grab some records right. and come back. So I, I feel like uh when I'm prepping for vinyl gigs, I just um, I listen to music while I'm picking my crate to get into the mindset of it, that particular gig.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it it can also sort of grease the wheels in a way to think about okay, well, I'm listening to this right now. What would go with it? Yeah. Kind of a yeah. thing, you know? Yeah, get more ideas. Oh, I should bring this. I should also bring this. Yeah, it's oh, like I a, should bring this. it's
2: like a domino effect. It just kind of just starts to your brain just starts to get into the to the zone and the gears just start going. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Chris, I wanted to ask you though because you you kind of do everything. You're very prolific with your your creativity. Um, you're in the studio. You're DJing. You're producing. You're on stage. You do solo projects. You have a lot of collaborative side projects. Which creative setting is most satisfying for you?
2: Uh, I, I think I, that's that's a hard question. Uh, I, I guess I feel like I, I like uh, studio stuff the most. What I like the most is uh, particularly like working on music for television. That's kind of like what I have been doing uh, for the last ten years, and I uh, as well as other things. But I, I definitely like that the most. It feels the most satisfying to me it allows me to kind of mm-hmm. like incorporate everything that I love about music into one kind of focused kind of thing you know what I mean
0: yeah you can be in the studio and kind of just dig deep into your your own head and
2: yeah and I can look for little samples to pull from from records or drum breaks so I can I can like kind of like dig around and find melodies that I'm inspired by from records and then play with those ideas and then work it into some kind of like cinematic kind of like um soundscape or like uh but it's all like focused towards a specific like uh task You know, which I kind of like, you know what, you know what I mean? (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I feel you. You you do like,
2: uh, you do some (laughs) soundtrack stuff too. Right, right.
0: So Chris, we're very happy to have you in the store today. And I'm wondering if you'd have some time to play a little game with us. When we have special guests come by, we like to play a little game called the High Fidelity Game, where we do like a top five of something just to kind of, you know, dig into your head, see what you're into. Are you up to play that game with us today?
2: Yeah, it sounds good.
0: What do you think we should do our top five on?
1: You know, I feel like we haven't really explored music books quite yet in this store. And I love reading about artists and, you know, their inspirations and kind of how they came to be. So it would be really cool if we talked about our top five music books. That's
0: a good one. I'm up for that. How about you, Chris? Yeah,
2: that sounds great. That's a great idea.
0: (laughs) Nice. Natalie, do you want to go first? Yeah, I definitely want to go first because as per usual... Okay. Well, let me, <laughs> let me start here. <laughs> I love reading. I love music, but for some reason, I don't gravitate towards books about music. So once again, I'm breaking the rules of the game. And instead of a top five, this is more like the first five I can recall. Let's put it that way. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I feel you. I do the same though with music documentaries, because I feel like it takes me at, at sitting down to watch a movie feels like such a commitment. Mm -hmm. So I feel you. So I don't really watch music documentaries as much, but I I like to read the books, which is probably backwards. I don't know
0: what it is. (laughs) Maybe that'll be like a New Year's resolution, read more music books. But in any case, I'm going to share the first five that I can think of with you guys today. (laughs) All right. So up first, I've got Ego Trips' book of rap lists. I'll have that book. This is from... Do you? I okay. I a great I you one. might. This is from nineteen ninety-nine. Yeah, this is great.
2: You know what I'm stepping out the playing with it because I'm slick like that. I'm the greatest MC in the world. You got to give me gimme give mine, cause I'm heavy when I weigh it. Watch the way I say it. Ego trip.
0: So it's by the Ego Trip team, Sasha Jenkins, Elliot Wilson, Jefferson Mao, Gabriel Alvarez, and Brent Rollins. So I remember reading this book in college, and a dormmate must have loaned it to me, because I don't physically have it now. And if you're not aware, Ego Trip was a hip hop magazine coming out of New York City, like in the '90s, oh. and they were like the mad magazine of hip hop. You know, it's so good. Is that a fair description? Very yeah. irreverent. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they they <laughs> call themselves the arrogant voice of musical truth, right?
2: Yeah, there was even like a, a snobbery kind of going on, but I, I kind of liked it though.
0: Yeah, it was it was playful. Like it, you never felt offended by it. You know? Yeah,
2: of course. It was like. Yeah, we just we, we, we know our shit, so just listen. Exactly.
0: <laughs> I had that hip-hop bravado and, and arrogance that culture is kind of known for, and I was completely cool with it. And I, I love books that consider not only the content, but how the presentation, like the presentation of that content as well. That's my mm. smarty pants way of saying, I like the pictures, Mom, the pictures and the colors. <laughs> it's a very beautifully laid out book. But basically, it's just a massive collection of actual lists, like mm. hip-hop firsts essential old school DJs most disappointing debut albums <laughs> lyrical faux pas like they just have all kinds of creative lists and it yeah. even has artists specific lists like Lauren Hill's biggest inspirations songs Slick Rick wishes he'd written mm. um, and records that changed Funkmaster Flex's life it's basically the Whoa. high fidelity game hip-hop version the book just full of lists. I want it. It's great.
1: I'm probably going to put that on my wish list like ASAP. I should too,
0: because now that I'm realizing I borrowed a copy, I'm kinda of mad that I don't own my own.
1: Sounds really cool. Yeah. But because of Ego Trips Were the lists created by the writers or are they were they actual lists created by like Lauren Hill? Did she really make that list or did they like think this is what her inspirations are? Kind of thing. Oh are they actually
0: her lists? Oh yeah. I got the impression that these were born from actual interviews. I mean, they are a journalistic, okay.
2: yeah. you know, group. Yeah. so
0: gotcha. they felt pretty authentic. I'm sure they are, and they had a lot of quotes and in, in interviews and stuff, much like the magazine itself. So,
2: yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah.
0: Because they're so irreverent and arrogant, they come up with some pretty clever, sometimes controversial list topics, like <laughs> Cool Keith's favorite places to pleasure himself in public. <laughs> and, uh, most memorable. Cookies, that sounds about right. Right. Most memorable misogynistic rap moments, stuff like that.
2: Oh yeah, oh, I, me- I remember God. that. I remember that list. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: They had some crazy ones in there. Uh, my favorite, though, <laughs> the forward of the book is written by Ego Trips' enigmatic financial backer Theodore Aloysius Bono. Chris, are you familiar with wow. Ted Bono?
2: <laughs> no, I, I don't. I'm not familiar with him,
0: dude. As hip-hop aliases and, like, mysterious characters go, Ted Bono may still be at the top of the list for me. I don't think I've ever figured out who this man really is. <laughs> I
1: feel like I've heard of this before. Why does that sound familiar? He's wild. He never breaks character.
0: Um, he's, he's not that active on Twitter anymore, but boy, oh boy, he was hilarious on Twitter. Um, apparently, he's old, rich, and white. <laughs> and even when he does <laughs> interviews with major music outlets, they, like, they play along, too. Like they'll introduce them as like part of this fantasy and you know it's not real. It's just, it's comical. It's the most solid hip hop alias in history. So I wanted to share a quote from Ted Bono. This is from Mega Laser Magazine to give you just a glimpse into his his mystique. I am Ted Bono, a media mogul, a lover of women and a connoisseur of the finer things in life. I am old, rich and white, but I am also more hip hop (laughs) than your average polar bear. I also firmly believe that the darker the berry, the sweeter the bush. If you get my drift... (laughs) God. That is Ted Bono. <laughs> He's super cool. Amazing. Okay. Wow. All right. Number two. So we've all agreed that we should, Tara, we're going to get a copy of this book. We need it on our shelves.
1: Yes. Yep. Book number
0: two is called Finishing the Hat, colon, collected lyrics, 1954 to 1981, with attendant comments, principles, heresies, grudges, wines, and anecdotes.
2: how oh, do you watch the rest of the world from a world
0: while you finish the hat. Published in 2010, written by Stephen Sondheim. It's kind of a memoir by Stephen Sondheim, who's the legendary theater composer and lyricist. Have you guys heard of him before?
1: I actually was just looking at my list to see if he wrote anything or was related to anything, because I feel like that name sounds so familiar again. Oh, yeah. But it's not. I was like, have I read? Does he have something on my list? I mean, no. even, even if you've
0: Never heard the name, or you're not familiar with the name. You've absolutely heard his music. Like, he's credited with reinventing the American musical. He's won a crap ton of Tonys, Grammys, an Academy Award, a Pulitzer Prize, Presidential Medal of Freedom. Like, he's an Emmy, short of oh, an EGOT. Wow. He's he's a big deal. His works include like West Side Story. Oh yeah. Company, Sweeney Todd, and Into the Woods, which is one of my favorite musicals. The book is named after a line from. One of his shows, Sunday in the Park with George. And Paul Simon reviewed this book for the New York Times. And he described that phrase, finishing the hat, as like a metaphor for, quote, the feeling of joy, the little squirt of dopamine hitting the brain when the artist creates a work of art. So it's like a metaphor for his love of songwriting. Wow. So is the book biographical or is it just lyrics or? So it's not really an autobiography. Basically... Each chapter covers a show and he'll include like lyrical excerpts of different numbers and then like contextualize them according to what's happening in the show, gotcha. lyrical technique or music composition. And then he'll throw in interesting anecdotes about the show and all his high profile collaborators like Leonard Bernstein and Harold Prince and his, min- his mentor Oscar Hammerstein from the famous duo Rodgers and Hammerstein. hmm yeah um it's just a great lens yeah. into what happens inside his head, and like behind the scenes of these large, huge productions that have stood the test of time and uh, he critiques other renowned lyricists, but he he's very mindful to only talk about those who have already passed on so he doesn't hurt anyone's feelings, which I thought was pretty cute, but I gotta say i, I don't I don't think I've seen, and I know this doesn't hold much weight because I don't read a ton of music books, but I don't think I've seen a musician do such an in-depth self-criticism and analysis, and in that sense. Reading his reflections on his own work has been some of like the best songwriting education I've ever received as a writer. It's like a masterclass from one of the goats. So that's cool. If you're into writing and you want to strengthen your skills, I highly recommend this book. Um, and he has such a sharp, witty delivery that you do get like a really generous peek into his life, you know, and he's got tons of old photos and playbills and things. So it's it's entertaining and educational, this book.
1: It sounds great. Yeah. yeah. And I'm intrigued that Paul Simon reviewed it. Yeah, he does. A, you said Paul Simon, right? Yeah, yeah, he does
0: a great article in the New York Times about it. Sadly, Sondheim passed away less than a year ago at the age of 91.
1: 91? Oh, yeah, he lived a long
0: sh- life. That's He great. sure did, yeah. Huh. And um, if you're into this book, there's a second volume that came out the following year called Look, I Made a Hat, where he <laughs> does the same with his additional roster of shows. So... Highly recommended.
2: Mm.
1: Look,
0: I made a hat. That's a great title. <laughs> yes. Yeah. All right. Moving on to number three, the Jazz Theory Book, published in 2011. And it's by Mark Levine. So this is this is a technique book now, and it's become a staple for understanding jazz concepts. It's intimidatingly comprehensive. It's got over 500 pages and not a line is wasted. (laughs) (laughs) It covers everything. Chord and scale theory, improvisation, reharmonization, memorizing tunes and reading lead sheets and like a ton of stuff at the end that I haven't even made it to. Um, Have either, have you heard of this book before? This is like jazz Bible. I
1: I was just looking him up to see, um, you know, obviously if you're writing Something like that. You must be a you know great musician yourself to understand all of the technique and whatnot. And he just died. Like oh really? Very oh no, January thirty first, twenty twenty two. Oh wow, I did not know that. Or he died. Sorry, he died January twenty seventh. Hmm. Still quite recent. Yeah. Oh, it was eighty three.
0: Okay. Well, this is definitely his legacy. This book will live on. I will be referencing this book my very last days for sure. Just just to share how I found this book, being a classically trained pianist, it became clear through the years that like I had some gaps in my education and I really wanted to go back and like pick up that foundational theory that i missed missed out on. And it's been great too, because like I'm aware of all of these principles, you know, just as a function of time or having a developed ear, but I couldn't, I could never express why I was playing what I was playing or why it sounded correct. You know, I just didn't have that vocabulary. Like Tara, I know you're in a band, you guys... Talking jazz, speak to each other. No like modes, not at all. And, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, I've been in those kinds of situations where I'm playing with a band, and they they speak completely in modes and chords and things like that, and changes. And I'm like, oh man, I, it, I would have to step away and like iron it out in my brain before I could perform it.
1: I mean, sometimes in my music lessons, mm-hmm. the teacher will say, you know, whatever chord something, and I'll be like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. Can you explain that? Right, right. So I, I think I know what you mean a little bit there. Yeah.
0: What about you, Chris? Do you have any background in, in music theory or anything like that?
2: A little bit. I was taking uh, guitar lessons uh, from a guy uh, at Georgia State, he teaches jazz and classical guitar playing, um, but I haven't done that in, a, in about a year. hmm but uh, he was teaching me more more about um, jazz as it relates to, like, guitar playing and, like, specific songs. I was learning kind of through learning songs, not necessarily in styles, not necessarily, like, theory so much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it was very, it's very, I don't know how to read music. But I was just I was basically using the technique, which is when you play songs through uh, guitar tabature, right? which is just like a series of like numbers that are that are basically um, telling you the the fret and the note and the string that, that, that the how the song is arranged.
0: Right, right. Yeah. Well, this book is great for self-study, I think. But you have to take it slow because it's very, very dense. So what mm. I what I do with it is I read until I hit a wall and then I have to step away from it like months at a time. <laughs> let it it sink in and then I'll come back reread and I'll find that I can push a little bit further so that's how I'm slowly but surely getting through the book myself and it's like you have all this stuff floating in your head like you know your scales and your chords and stuff but this book really helps you stitch those pieces together so you have some real world facility with improvisation Hmm. yeah it's great it's not for beginners but just take it in small chunks (laughs) let it marinate it's worth the effort a lot of great examples that you can listen to and, you know, notations that you can, you know, play yourself. Yeah. Great. The jazz reference book, I think. Cool. Nice. So number four is I Want My MTV, The Uncensored Story of the Music Video Revolution. From 2011. Oh, Wow. Yes, this is by
1: that sounds cool.
0: Music journalists Craig Marks and Rob Tannenbaum, and it covers the first decade of MTV, like eighty-one to ninety-two, back when it was all about the music video before it crossed into reality TV. And it just presents the full saga of OG MTV from the perspective of the people who lived it. You know, and you you learn about how how hard it was getting cable companies to even pick them up in the first place. How there were so few music videos back then that they had to like prod the record labels to make videos for them to play. Oh wow. And
1: Yeah, but then I like I I just watched a it's like a mini documentary sort of thing by Mike Judge, animated. It's called Tales from the Tour Bus. I just watched the uh Rick James one. Oh yeah, it's so and,
2: good.
1: Yeah. And he was talking about how like MTV would never play his music, but yeah. they were playing Prince and Michael Jackson, but not hit not Rick James. So I'm just like well, if they were so, I mean, probably still early 80s. Why, why are they being so picky when there's people like out there that are greats like Rick James who wouldn't get in any airtime? Yeah, you that's know. totally valid. That is so stupid. <laughs> that
0: is stupid. That's interesting. Yeah, I saw
2: that that documentary as well, the Rick James documentary. He talks about there's a section when he starts to get really, really big, like after, um, what's that one album that has like, it has the album that has Give It To Me Baby on it?
1: Uh, Street songs.
2: Street songs, yeah. He mentioned how he wanted to have that video on MTV and they were not, they were just refusing to play because they just weren't, they thought he was too black or yeah,
0: not, well, yeah too whatever
2: to play on MTV. Because because MTV at that time was pretty much all just, what are the Michael Jackson and Prince was just all white artists. You know, they had, you know.
0: Yeah. Well, and on top of that, they brought in British videos as well, which is how we got exposed to like new wave groups like Duran Duran and Culture Club and stuff like that. So they were actively pulling those artists in.
2: Yeah.
1: Which, Which is cool for sure. Yeah. Yeah, like, like that Rick James album came out in 1981. MTV first aired in 1981 also. So yeah, it's like around the same time. So annoyed. that's frustrating to hear that they were hard up for videos but then won't play certain videos. Yeah, that is you frustrating. Oh. And, and the book makes a big stink
0: too about how Michael Jackson pretty much saved the network, you know, because all of Michael Jackson's videos were such a huge deal.
1: I can't tell you how many times I watched that moonwalk. VHS <laughs> but yeah they would like which had like all the videos they would play his videos
0: top of the hour every hour you know at some point
2: yeah I, I remember seeing the documentary on Quincy Jones it was called Quincy and he, he talks about uh, even that was a struggle initially getting his videos on MTV and then they ended up being like a you know ended up saving them there was a struggle just to get his videos on initially which is Uh-oh. crazy
0: MTV, you oh, got some crazy. explaining to do. <laughs> that's not okay. Yeah. I mean, it's a shame, too, because they, they have this facade where, like, they, they clearly weren't af- afraid to have all these different eras, the hairband era, the hip-hop era. You know, it, it's just kind the of sad hair, to share. Hair metal. That they were, <laughs> right. That people were, like, excluded, actively excluded from the conversation. yeah sucks. And Rick James rules. It does suck.
1: <laughs> yeah. Until a certain point. Well, yeah. <laughs> when he started... Trapping women in the closet and torturing them.
2: You know. Oh, yeah. Era. Rick, Rick, Rick Rick James, yeah.
1: His
0: music videos rule, let's say that. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, you know, they add they add the whole wild and crazy ride. Who knows what happens behind the scenes, the drugs, the parties, the fights, you know, cultural dominance, yeah. man. So if you're an MTV kid like me, the book is a rip-roaring, nostalgic, good time. It is a little all over the place. Like, they just kind of throw quote after quote at you with all these bizarre random anecdotes from different celebrities and network execs. It gets a little haphazard, but... And it's nearly 600 pages long, so it does the most. Oh, oh my gosh. Wow. It does the wow. most. Um, I'll get the audiobook, <laughs> No, but the book is great because it's got a lot of cool pictures and stuff from that oh, time. okay. Yeah, definitely get the book.
1: Do you remember the first time you saw MTV as a child? I remember. <laughs> the first time. What was your reaction or, like, do you remember kind of what you did or, like, how you...
2: I was a little boy and I'm an only child, so I was, uh, I spent a lot of time on myself as like a six, seven, eight year old and uh, television was something that I just watched a lot because it was just, no one was around to me. But I remember watching MTV a lot at that age and seeing like music videos by, you know, people like Billy Idol or like just lots of like pop, 80s pop kind of like stars. And just kind of being drawn to it and also being drawn to like the more weirder kind of music videos, like the more like, like the tubes or like the cars who had like these very kind of almost kind of surreal kind of like dreamscape music videos where these strange kind of narratives would play out to music. And I I really enjoyed it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Natalie? It's hard to talk
0: about the first time I saw MTV because it was just forever present in my life. It was just always there. And I always watched it. I Literally grew up. MTV is the soundtrack of my youth, right? Yeah. So I don't know. I, it, it was just. It was always there for me through to good times and bad, my MTV. So. Yeah. I
1: don't know. My mom likes to tell the story of when I first saw MTV. She says that I was just in a trance. Like, I. It's like I, my eyes blazed over. I was like sucked <laughs> in. Yeah. And. To me, it's so funny. I think at a young age, that and hearing stories of how my mom used to have to hold my hand to put the needle on the record, I just feel like some of that is so telling to who we are now.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like you were saying, it was like the soundtrack of your life. You loved it. That's you lived on it. MTV, and now look at you—you're making music, producing music. Yeah, you work in a record store. <laughs> yes, <laughs> no, but yeah, it, it just—it's uh, funny how these, and I think. MTV was a big deal. So it's, uh, I don't know, interesting to sort of look back and reflect on it.
0: I'm going to go back and (laughs) and leaf through and see if there's any mention of Rick James because I need answers. (laughs) All right. This is my final selection. Number five Absolutely on Music Conversations with Seiji Ozawa. This was published in 2011. It's by Haruki Murakami, who is known for being a a huge music lover as much as he's known for his fiction books. I adore Murakami's fiction books. Have you guys into his books at all?
1: Oh, yeah. 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 I've got a few on the shelf now. He's a very interesting writer. And I want to mention one of the themes that I commonly pick up on, but I also don't want to ruin it. I think that's not Ruin ruining it. Go for it. Have you noticed how uh, there's always like miniature people in a lot of his stories? Like, there's always little people.
0: Little people, like.
1: Like miniature, like tiny, like mm-hmm. tiny pocket-sized people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, he popping has up some, in his stories.
0: He has little recurring themes through his books, and he's definitely very like fantastical and blurs the lines between reality and fantasy. So yeah, I ha- yeah I have noticed that.
1: Yeah, but he also does talk a lot about music and food in his books and I really love when he describes those moments. I do he's too. You know.
0: He's so good at that. He can he can yeah. take just the most mundane scene of a dude in his kitchen making a sandwich and you're just like Yeah, enraptured for two pages this dude spreading <laughs> mayonnaise on his bread. <laughs> I don't know how he does it, but I love that about his writing. Yeah.
1: Or like being stuck in traffic in a car, but this classical piece is playing and he'll walk you through kind of like where the piece is and what moment and is there a violin happening? Yeah, Yeah. it's just so interesting how he'll turn exactly what you said, a mundane moment into something that's kind of a bigger deal.
0: Yeah, his passion for music definitely comes through a lot in his writing. Yeah, and he's got a couple other uh, nonfiction books about music as well, I believe, but I haven't I haven't delved mm-hmm. into his nonfiction as much. But this one, I'm really glad I picked it up. It's a collection of conversations with Seiji Ozawa, his close friend and famous former conductor of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. So it's just like two hardcore music enthusiasts hanging out, listening to some of their favorite classical recordings, and just talk and shop. You know, the conversations happen over the course of two years, and they cover a broad selection of music from. Brahms and Beethoven to Mahler, and they even dissect the same pieces performed by different orchestras, Mm. conductors, and soloists, like for comparison. One thing that was really cool while reading this book is like it helped me appreciate and better understand the preparation and the physicality of conducting. Like, I've never really thought about it before, but there's like the action of conducting and the mental aspects of it and how they are significantly shaping the way the music is expressed and experienced by the listeners. Like, I'm ashamed to say it, but I, I guess once upon a time, I just thought conductors were like human metronomes mostly. Isn't that terrible to say? <laughs> yeah. I feel terrible even saying that out loud. Um, but it goes much, much deeper than that. And hearing Ozawa talk about it is just, um, it's really fascinating.
1: Yeah. Can you remind me the name of this one?
0: It's called Absolutely On okay. Music.
2: Yeah. I always thought that, too, to be honest.
0: Okay, good. Thank you. <laughs> it should maybe help me feel better. Yeah,
2: I, I I, just thought that they were just keeping time for everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's obviously, even when I was like, as a, as a kid, watching musical directors in, in church, because it's similar where the music director was standing in front of a group of musicians and he's he's leading them, but I thought they were just, he was just keeping time, you know what I mean? <laughs> but it's more than, there's a lot, lot more to it than that. But I didn't know oh, that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Right. Well, yeah. gospel choir leaders, that's a whole different... <laughs>
1: whole different shit dig.
0: Yeah. But still the same. They're, they're doing a lot more than, than meets mm. the eye.
1: Yeah. I used to play bassoon in our high school band orchestra. And I I I did grow to appreciate the conductor's job. And especially if you think of it in a way that's almost like dance or just pairing movement with something like a classical piece mm-hmm. or anything like that, where you need more crescendo and how their arms mm. are getting wider and it's just, it, it provides kind of a movement to something that you're hearing. But I mean, obviously you can see the, you know, violin strings moving or, you know, drums. There's movement happening, but something about a conductor being kind of like the the dancer of the the show.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And after reading this, that makes perfect sense to me. And then also it's it's like a collaboration with the soloist. Like they're having this whole... Dialogue unto themselves about the flow yeah. of the piece. It's really cool, and, and the best part of it is that there are there are playlists available online, so you can like listen along while reading their discussion, uh, oh. and that makes it so much more enjoyable because they point out such subtle details in the music. It's really satisfying to hear what they're hearing and be able to understand the criticisms and comparisons that they're making. Right,
1: man. My to read list <laughs> is just growing by the minute. <laughs> so. Yeah, <laughs> or no? Thanks. <laughs> no, thank no, thank you. Yeah. yeah, I'm excited to to dig into this. It's it's
0: similar to the Sondheim book in that it's it's educational and entertaining at the same time because they share a lot of stories about you know iconic classical performers like Glenn Gould and Leonard Bernstein. Um, obviously, it's going to appeal to you more if you're into classical mm-hmm. music. But um, right. if you like Murakami, even it's fun when like Ozawa explains something. And then Murakami chimes in to interpret it and he uses that same signature fantastical voice that he writes in. It's just it's a really beautifully written book. And if you just feel like a fly on the wall listening to two friends chat, highly recommended. All right. Those are my uh, first five music books I can recall.
1: (laughs) You know, you really sold yourself short (laughs) before your list talking about how you were just going to list off some. (laughs) <laughs> Off the top here. No, way. those are great recommendations and I can't wait to, I'm definitely going to buy the Ego, ego Tripping one. Oh, yeah. I'm definitely going to buy the Ego Trips list book and I'm going to also dig into that Murakami music book as well. Sweet. Super cool.
2: Yeah, it was a really, really nice. Yay. nice list.
1: Thanks, guys. I can't wait to hear what Chris has.
2: I have uh, I have five books picked out. I have an honorable mention as well, but I I wanted to start out with uh, <clears throat> one of the books from the thirty three and a third series because uh, I I love that book series where they where they just take like an album and one writer just dissects it and talks about um, just deconstructs it and talks about it in an interesting way. They're all really kind of unique. I've read about three of them or maybe four of them.
1: Yeah. Okay, Chris. I have. I have beef with oh, this book series. Oh, you do. I collect them. I collect them, but I haven't read one that really talks about the record that it's for. Yeah, it's like always the freaking author's <laughs> opportunity to talk about how it impacted their life or it talks mm. about their, themselves. And it frustrates me to no end. <laughs> I'm like, I would like to read about the actual record that this book is supposed <laughs> to be about, not I you. can see what you mean. So I'm excited to know which one is the one that made your list because I want to know which is hmm. one that doesn't do that. Because I've read a which couple. Which ones? And
2: which ones have you have you read?
1: Well, I feel like I don't want to call them out because then. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay. Okay.
1: <laughs> Tell me the good ones.
2: Well, the one the one that I have is like I think it's like one of the earlier releases. It's like one of the it's like the seventh or eighth book that they put out, and it's um, by a guy named John Perry. And he was in a band called The Only Ones, which is like a post-punk band, English post-punk band from the early '80s. Um, but the book is about uh, Jimi Hendrix' cool. Electric Ladyland. I'm not the only soul accused of hit and run. Tire tracks all across your back. I can, I can see you had your fun, but uh, darling, can't you see my signals turn from green to red? And uh. That album had a pretty big impact on me when I when I first heard it. When I watched, listened to your to your podcast about Shiggy Otis, kind of reminded me of uh, how much the, in- the impact this album had on me as a teenager. But uh, this book is pretty good because it it uh, it talks about this album being this album or this album being a departure for Jimi Hendrix and how he was uh, he was um, starting to kind of like just find his own footing, building his own studio. Just becoming more of like a, an artist not being controlled by executives or producers. He was just, he produced the whole album himself. He built a studio to record the album. Like he was putting money into the studio by playing more shows to fund the production of the studio. It was just a lot of stuff that he did that were that was yeah. new to him for this particular cool. project. You know.
1: So they actually yeah. talk about that in the book. See, that's that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for an insight into the record or the artist not. Some like biography. I mean, although uh, sometimes that is interesting too to hear, kind of you know the time, the time that an album came out and how society was or whatever. That that's cool. Like the cultural impact of a record is, yeah. is interesting too. But mostly, I want to hear those facts, like like the ones you've just mentioned because I I didn't know that um, about him. You know, building building that studio. That's yeah, cool. it's,
2: it's yeah. I mean the uh, um that studio is called Electric Lady Land which is where Voodoo. D'Angelo's album was yeah. recorded. A bunch of the albums were recorded there. The Roots recorded a bunch of the albums there. But it was built, but it was built to record this album. And it's the first album he did in the United States. And it's pretty much just him in a studio with a, two engineers and a drummer. And he just kinda like he hires musicians to play along with him in his recordings. But it's 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 like it's a different approach than what he's previously done in the past. Um but yeah, it's a little book but it's got a lot of information in it
0: so i haven't read any of these books in this entire series i've heard of it but i've never read any of them and i see they have topics i would be interested in like they have one on Joni Joni mitchell um tara please wink at me twice if that's one of the bad eggs nope okay so (laughs) not
1: i don't have that one
0: okay yeah so i might check that one out (laughs) and definitely this one you're saying it's good
2: yeah um uh, the, uh, the second book is a book called Dirty South. It's by Ben Westoff.
0: Like like oh, yeah,
2: it was published in 2011. He's a, he's a journalist who, who worked on a lot of different, um, East Coast magazine publications, newspapers. He worked for the crave loafing for a little while, uh, but, this book is like a, like a collection of um, articles that he kind of combined together and then built a book out of it. But it's it's about uh, it's about fifteen different chapters. It's a small book, but it's like fifteen different chapters. and each chapter is a um, a pioneering musician artist from the South. It starts with Lou Campbell from Two Live Crew mm-hmm. and talks about Miami booty bass music, Ghetto Boys goes into chopped and screwed music, UGK. And it cuts to, like, Atlanta music scene with OutKast, Goody Mob, Organized Noise. It really kind of breaks down uh, Southern rap, breaks it down by the pioneers of that that music genre, you know? Yeah. I'm sure there's lots of books about this subject, but I just really liked uh, how this one was laid out. And uh, he specifically interviews, like, all these great pioneering artists. There's a whole section just on TI and DJ Drama. He goes to uh, St. Louis, talks to Nelly. It's just kind of back to Miami with T-Pain. And it just kind of goes goes in pretty deep on like uh, all their kind of influences.
0: That's super cool. That's just, I've already added yeah. it to my Kindle list while you were talking.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm like, okay, I'm going to be buying this one too. Cool, cool. We should start a book club. <laughs> we should. Hey. Breakfast love society after hours. I love, it. I love that. <laughs> I think you're onto something with that one. <laughs> I also see that Soldier Boy is talked about in this book, and I just had to yes. say that out loud because we Soldier Boy w- was brought up in the store last time we were talking, and so, you know, ha- what are the chances we talk about Soldier Boy twice in a row?: So <laughs> I just, yeah, I had to call that one out.
0: <laughs> He's going to be a recurring theme for 2022.
1: Yeah.: Yeah, Soldier Boy.:
2: Right. Nice.
1: Gonna make a comeback.
0: So, Chris, tell me, out of all these yeah. different interviews, do you have like a favorite chapter or a favorite artist story from this book?
2: Um, well, I I like um, I really liked hearing about um, there's a section on Virginia, which just which talks about Neptune's and Timberland and Missy Elliott, and uh, I just I I I think I liked that chapter the most because that that's the particular scene that I feel like I was most impacted by as a producer, like beat maker, like. I feel like Timberland is just such a such a powerhouse, such a creative force in beat making and just he basically kind of created a genre himself. You know what I mean? And uh, it's interesting to to read about that. And like him also being friends with the Neptunes and Pharrell and Chad Hugo. um, Yeah, it was it's it's interesting. Yeah, cool. I look forward to reading that story
0: for sure.
1: (laughs) Yeah, me too. I mean, yeah, Timberland has made such a mark. You can hear when it's a Timbaland song. Like you know, this is Tim- Timbaland made this. Yeah, like you, you just know.
2: Yeah, it's true. Yeah, he has a very distinctive uh, mm-hmm. yeah. sound. I guess the the newest book from my list is number three. It's um, it's called Prince: The Beautiful Ones. <gasps>
1: Have that one. Is that on your list? I have it. I haven't read it yet. I have a million. I do the thing. There's even a word for it, a Japanese word, where I buy books and then don't read them. <laughs> 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 so I have many. I mean, I will hopefully eventually one day get around to reading all of them, but I will also continue to buy more books. And so it, it'll be a problem that just keeps uh, going. But yeah, so I, I have this book and I, I can't wait to read it.
2: I was surprised at how i mean it's it's a it's an amazing book for many reasons, but I was surprised at how short it is, but it makes sense because I thought it wasn't complete the way he wanted to, it to be completed because he um he died um while it was being written yeah so yeah, this book came out in two thousand nineteen and uh most of the writing in the book talks about his uh relationship with the uh the kind of co-author of the memoir and this this guy he's uh he's a writer but he's more of like a just a really big music fan a big prince fan i think and prince really wanted to have someone working on this book with him that was uh that was like a huge fan of his music you know that was like really important to him
1: yeah that's really cool so what are kind of because i haven't read it yet is it is it by i know there's a ton of pictures in the book and they're beautiful But is it kind Mm of biographical in the sense, or does it talk about what's the main subject matter? Yeah, I mean, obviously Prince. Yeah,
2: yeah, it's like a, it's like a, it's a memoir, but because I guess I felt like, um, and it kind of like it really does a good job of like telling you like how the book was constructed, how Prince had a section of his of his of his. this mass, you know, Paisley Park Studios, where he lived, like that was devoted just to the book. He had pages laid out. He had, it hit kind of like how he wanted it to to be arranged. He had written a bunch of pages, and they were all kind of laid out in specific kind of order. But then he died during the whole process of it being made. So there's a there's a there's a great kind of like linear kind of flow to it, where it starts off with his childhood and just kind of goes into um, his like grade school years and high school years and his first girlfriend and his pictures of like him and his friends and then him being like signed as a, as a teenager to Warner Brothers and being you know flown off flown into like flown to like LA and you know hanging out in a yacht as a 19 year old <laughs> you know there's pictures of him on a boat with like studio executives and he's like a kid you know what i mean yeah. and it's uh it's really interesting to see like it's like a little like um peek into his his life as a, as, um, because most of the stuff you you see in the book, I feel like it's like showing that stage when he was just getting exposed to being famous, you know what I mean? And getting all this attention from Warner brothers and, um, having just total control to just do whatever he wanted to do.
0: That's interesting. I mean, we, we are so familiar with Prince's work after he blew up and became this global phenomenon, but how interesting it would be to like learn about the kid, you know? As they called him in the movie, yeah. Um, before he blew up like this, yeah. how are you a teenager and and you are prince? <laughs> what's what's that like?
2: Yeah, you know? yeah. That's the beauty of, that's the beautiful thing about this book. I think is that it uh, there's there's lots of like kind of like uh, insight into like his like teenage years. Just kind of like there's all these little pieces of memorabilia that's been photographed or scanned into the book. Like him just writing little notes, constructing his like sort of like aesthetic, mystique, you know what I mean? Like he's like he's built he's built that from like from being like a kid on, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's interesting how much he he worked at building like his image, as well as the songwriting and the the craft, but it was all built at the same time. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. That's another thing Rick James was saying. He was saying that Prince made him work hard just because he (laughs) was trying to keep up with Prince this this whole the whole time. And Prince, uh, you know, pretty much made the time, and Prince made Vanity Six, and then so Rick James made, you know, the uh, Mary Jane Girls, and uh, what's the other band, Do Rags or something? Oh, yeah. So he made a, a guy group, and he made a girl group, and just trying to keep up with Prince. Which, by the way, and I, I, the other um, Mike Judge, another Mike Judge, many animated doc about. About the time, more stay in the time. Talks about when they first met Prince as a teenager in someone's garage and he was just hiding in the shadows and <laughs> he had these like super, like he he just like super weird looking kid, like bugged out of his mind, super quiet, wouldn't talk. And then all of a sudden he'd he'd break out of his shell and laugh and be normal. And then he would go back to his like serious act again. <laughs> I just, yeah, I love I it love so him. much. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, another great thing about this book, too, is that it, it kind of, like, it gives you a little insight into how he, like, interacts with people who, who work for him, like like his staff or his, like, this guy was basically, like, brought in, his name is Dan, I'm not saying his, his name correctly, but Dan Pippenberg, and he uh, he was hired in a very kind of, like, unusual way, like, he was kind of brought in through a number of interviews, he stayed in Minneapolis a few miles from Paisley Park in a little hotel and would just come to this, to Paisley Park every so often when Prince asked him to. And it was just, it was a very kind of slow process and just kind of organically kind of just worked his way into just being the writer on this book. It's just kind of like, it was like a very kind of, it seemed just very unusual the way Prince's approach to picking him.
1: Uh, Prince always doing it his way. Yeah, really. His whole life.
2: Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I... um I loved it. It's a, it's a it's a great little book, yeah. but it does make you wish that it was longer because you wish you had, there was more. Because the actual writing, the actual like story in the book is 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 a very small amount compared to all the different photographs and um, memorabilia.
1: Yeah. Can I just uh, share another random thing about Prince that I love to talk about anytime Prince comes up? Uh, there's an article that came out. A while ago, maybe almost like a decade ago at this point. And it's about what's in Prince's refrigerator. Have you heard of this?
0: (laughs) No, No, but please share. It
1: is hilarious. He has like many different kinds of mustards, like goat's (laughs) milk and Dunkaroos.
0: Dunkaroos. (laughs)
2: What is that?
1: Dunkaroos. That's the like snack from the '90s. It has like icing on one side. Do you remember a handy snack, which the crackers with the cheese, and you get the little red stick?
2: Oh yeah. Dunkaroos
1: was like icing on one side and little graham cracker kangaroos, (laughs) and you dip the kangaroos into the icing. Of course, Prince
2: likes Dunkaroos.
0: Makes so much sense. Prince loves
1: Dunkaroos and mustard. (laughs) Hopefully not together.
2: (laughs) I love mustard too. (laughs)
1: Google this article. It is very fascinating, very cool (laughs) to read.
0: I love that as a concept. Could you imagine pitching that article to
1: your boss? Picture this. Ask Prince what's in his refrigerator. (laughs) I mean, I would love to know. Well, see, and you would think, okay, is this an interesting topic for other people? Uh, would, Would other people have interesting refrigerators? Probably not, but Prince... Nailed it. His refrigerator is one of a kind. <laughs> and it's burned into my brain forever. You know, so, certain articles that you read, you forget about. You read one random article, and it's forever burned into your brain. And this, this is one for me. Dude, What's in Prince's fridge? I just
0: pulled it up on Google, and they have, like, a list. 18 varieties of mustard. Yak milk. <laughs> Yak milk? Yak milk. What? Like, why? Yeah, why?
2: Uh, <laughs> what? What is what is yak milk? Do you know what that is?
0: The milk from a, a yak. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I,
0: what it is in taste, I don't know, and I'm not eager to find out. Um, homemade kimchi, Dunkaroos about five pounds worth for a rainy day. All right, he likes to be prepared. Microgreens about one cubic foot's worth. Okay. He's preparing for a very specific Micro kind of greens. lockdown. Yes.
1: He even had the out-of-print varieties of Dunkaroos. Out-of-print varieties. Black market Dunkaroos.
0: Dark <laughs> yeah. web Dunkaroos. That's great.
1: Yeah. If you're in the store listening, go Google that article. It's amazing.
2: I'll check that out. Well, uh, should I go on to the next? Yeah. one? Okay, well, number four is, uh, it's a pretty... Rare book. It's more of a coffee table book, I guess you would call it. think people even call coffee table books coffee table books anymore? Uh, it's called Behind the Beat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, it's more of like a photography book. It's a collection of photos, and there's a little bit of information, but mainly it's just photographs of. Um, beat Makers Studios. Oh, that's cool. Um, this was this came out in, uh, I think it was like, um, I think it was published in 2005. Um, but each little chapter is a producer's studio. So we have, there's there's a section on Dan the Automator, DJ Shadow, mm-hmm. um, Cut Chemist, Mad Lib, DJ Premier, DJ Swift, uh, Jay Dilla, and um, so a lot of like um, the Beat Miners. A lot of like... Um, hip hop producers from like the 90s and 2000s but I remember being just kind of like floored by it because um, I have a you know a little music studio at home but I was surprised at how there were so many albums that I liked to just were so impact, impacted me so much that were built or built created in like small home studio environments like when I look at DJ Shadow's studio from this book and it's the exact studio that he, that he made introducing in and that album is incredible it just it changed my life hearing that record, and uh, he just made it in a room. This was like a room with some gear and records all over the floor, you know. <laughs> and uh, same thing with DJ Premier. Like his early studios are pretty small. They're pretty like primitive, kind of like just simple kind of setups, you know. Which I didn't expect to see. That I mean, nowadays, of course, these guys are working in big right. studios. But when they first started out, they were in like small spaces, you know. They were DIY they kind were of spaces, just like
1: us. Right. <laughs> this is really cool. I want this book immediately. Amazon Prime one day tomorrow, please. <laughs> I want it. Also, it looks like there's a sequel that came out in 2017 called Back to the Lab, oh, and is. it has like Flylo in it. DJ Jazzy Jeff. Oh wow! So I know I also have to get that one. <laughs> That's really cool. Nice. I, yeah. I love this. I love this idea. And maybe, wait, does yours come with a CD? Did yours come with a CD?
2: Oh, yeah. You're right. It does. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I've never actually looked at it before, but there was a CD in the back.
1: So it's got, like, all the music from all the people, all the studios. That's so cool.
2: Yeah, it has, has like, 15 songs on the CD from a song from each, each producer, yeah.
1: Is there one... Studio that is like, well, which one is your favorite looking studio? Or is it? Yeah, and and so if you have a favorite, why is it your favorite? Is it you know? Does it look homely or you know? Is it very extravagant or is you know a mess? <laughs> Stuff cluttered everywhere. Well, I think my
2: I think I think my favorite one is probably um, Mad Libs because I I love Mad Lib yeah. so much um, and uh, his studio. It's just such a like. It's such a beautiful chaotic cluster of just, just, it's just so much stuff just cluttered everywhere. There's drums There's a drum set in the corner. Records piled up to the ceiling. It's just. It's insane how much gear he has in one room. There's one picture where he literally has like a drum set and it's surrounded by records. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's awesome.
2: And because uh, Madlib, like, he plays all these instruments. He plays, he, he plays. He builds jazz albums. Just by himself, you know what yeah. I mean. Yeah, um,
1: and and used so many samples too, so that explains like both parts of that photo. I mean, yeah, the drums and the records part, I guess.
2: Yeah, he's just such a prolific artist. That was the most, probably the most impressive one. Also, just the the most, um, just just kind of insane visually to see like so much gear crammed together <laughs> in one little <laughs> space.
1: <laughs> yeah, is that your is last? That, oh, there's b- one okay, more okay. book. I lost count.
2: There's one more book. Um, this is number five. This, this book, the last book that I have on my list is uh, it's called How Music Works by David Byrne. This is on
0: my list to
1: buy. Not
2: I I had a feeling that yeah. that it was going to one. It's not be on, on list, my too. top
1: li- top 5. It's on my to-read list. I've I've been wanting oh, okay. to read this one for a while.
2: Yeah, it's uh it's incredible book. It's pretty dense. Um it reads as an autobiography of just his his life as a musician and um just a, an artist, but it also talks a lot about uh, music theory and like the concepts about the creation of music based on the origin. Like basically like it talks about music coming out of Europe for the first time, music coming out of Africa and how those, th- those locations um, affect how music is made or created <laughs> the way that it sounds. You know, African music being Nigerian or Kenya music being so rhythmic based because a lot of it was being composed or built outside versus a large cathedral space in Europe, like with old organ kind of like pipe organ music, which is using reverb to basically like, um, it affects how it's created the reverb, the sound of these giant cathedral halls and how that affects how people would write songs or pieces of music. Uh, it's a cool book and talks a lot about David Burns, you know, start with talking heads and, um, the early days, the punk, post-punk days in New York, yeah. playing at CBGBs, and seeing and being around people like Patty Hurst. I'm sorry, Patty, <laughs> Patty Smith. <laughs> Patty Hurst. totally different <laughs> person. I highly recommend it.
1: Yeah, it's uh, so I haven't read this one yet, but I'm glad that you're talking about it. I have last year. I just read Chris France's uh, biography, and I don't think that. Chris France really painted David Byrne in a very positive light. (laughs) So I would Mm. like to, I need to read this one, uh, David Byrne's book, to see kind of the counter, you know, how does he talk about the talking heads um, and his own experience with it. So, um, But yeah, and it's super cool that he talks more about music theory and influences of music from around the world and history and stuff. Because I I do think that's something that Talking Heads did with their music as well. You know, there's very punk influence, but lots of uh, different sounds are brought in. And they worked with Lee Scratch Perry. And Mm -hmm. they just seemed like they're heavily influenced by a lot of different global artists. And you could hear it in their sound.
2: Yeah, he mentions that, too. He talks a lot about uh, his his uh, being influenced by Japanese theater and uh, performance art and all that affected their approach to live performance. Um, yeah, it's it's, yeah. it's great.
1: Super cool.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's a good one. I always flirt with this book when I'm in a bookstore. I'll pick it up and, like, sift through the pages and read a little bit here and there. But I have commitment issues, so I never, like, purchased <laughs> it. <laughs> but maybe I, sh- I will now.
2: It's so puffy, too.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, it's a beautiful book.
2: Yeah. It's like a little like cloud.
0: Well you've certainly beefed yeah. up my reading list. I have I've like jotted down every single one of those.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm excited to read all of those. Oh gosh. Yeah, definitely the um Goodreads list is growing by by the second here.
2: What was that book you you said was the follow-up to Behind the Beat?
1: Back to the Lab or something like
2: that? Yeah. Back to the Lab. Yeah.
1: Cool. Well, shall I dive into my list?
0: What you got, Tara? All
1: right. So, my list. And I have ranked these, by the way. Doing it right. (laughs) So these are not worst to best, but you know what I mean. They're all great, the top five. But the best will be number one. Starting off with number five is the book Hellfire by Nick Toshes. You shake my nerves and you rattle my brain. This is a book about Jerry Lee Lewis's life, but the way that it's written is like a Faulkner novel <laughs> or something. <laughs> <laughs> so Jerry Lee Lewis is already just like the craziest Person and he's still alive, which kind of blows my mind. Wow, I know, right? What, how? Um, (laughs) but it came, this book came out in 1998, and I think I read it probably in the early 2000s. But it's such a wild ride. We already know, like, everybody knows about Jerry Lee Lewis to some extent, but reading this book, I was somehow even more shocked. (laughs) He's just, he's just. He's just had the craziest life, and he's done the craziest things. And
0: I'm looking at the synopsis. He's like one of those.
1: Yeah, he's like one of the. To me, I, when I think of Jerry Lee Lewis, he reminds me of like one of those serpent preacher, like snake oil type, <laughs> yeah, folks. Yeah, and I think because I, I think he was trying to be a preacher at one point, but then he got into the devil's music, rock and roll. But I think he still embodies this like crazy passion that like someone overtaken by a spirit would when he performs, but then there's all the drugs and then the whole thing about marrying his cousin. And I recently learned that maybe he also killed his, like one of his last wives. I don't know. Just.
0: Yeah. This book Uh, looks wild.
1: (laughs) Just absolutely nuts. Has there been a movie made yet? Well, I think there's so. definitely been a movie made about Jerry Lee Lewis. And uh, I think it's um, oh, who's the guy? Who, who's the guy that was married to Meg Ryan? He's the, the Jerry Lee Lewis guy, actor.
2: I remember seeing a trailer for that, him marrying his cousin.
1: Oh, yeah. 1989. It's called Great Balls of Fire. Dennis right. Quaid Dennis is Quaid, Jerry Lee Lewis. Right. Winona Ryder is the cousin. Wow. <laughs> but yeah, great. Great movie and. Dennis Quaid. And great wow. uh, book, Hellfire. Rolling Stone calls it the greatest rock and roll bio of all time. That was like 38 years ago or whatever. <laughs> so, I don't know. This looks like it's. I don't great. know if something's
0: topped it, but this looks like it's a great book, just independently of the music connection. Like just the story of his life. Yeah. Seems like a really insane read. For anyone.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if you don't know anything about Jerry Lee Lewis or even if you consider yourself a Jerry Lee expert, I think either audience will be shocked <laughs> and entertained.
0: <laughs> cool, I want to read this.
1: All right, number four is Jeff Tweedy's Let's Go So We Can Get Back, a memoir of recording and discording with Wilco Etc. we we'll follow you around it came out in 2018. It's an incredibly honest uh, look into Jeff Tweedy's life. I I'm not a huge Wilco fan, or even a huge Uncle Tupelo fan. It's not that I don't like them. I just never really got into their music heavily or anything like that. I know he's a great songwriter. I respect him as a musician, but was recommended this book, and I was okay, I'll read it. I, I actually listened to the audio. But I like to listen to the audio books of books like this because it's usually the person reading it. Mm-hmm. And so I really like that. So yeah, Jeff Tweedy was the one reading. the, And actually he had a, um, snippets, his wife actually reading some snippets too, which I thought was really cool. And you can hear her like very strong Midwest accent, uh, Chicago. It's great. But yeah, I just had no idea the struggles that he or his family had been through with like alcoholism, substance abuse, um, just like mental struggles his brain, he was having with his brain to, and then self medicating to help relieve like migraines and maybe bipolarism, I, just so many things he was experiencing but he seemed to be kind of a, a good, just like very positive the whole way through. Somehow, I don't know. And just the way that he talks about music, I felt like I could really relate to a lot. Check out, I got, I got a quote that I want to read. He says, Learning how to play the guitar is, is the one thing I always look back on with wonderment. I'm reminded of what ifs every time I pick up a guitar. Where would I be? I have sort of a survivor's guilt about it that makes me want it for everyone. Not the guitar exactly, but something like it for everybody. Something that would love them back the more they love it. Something that would remind them of how far they've come and provide clear evidence that the future is always unfolding towards some small treasure worth waiting for. I was like, damn.
0: That's beautiful. I
1: can still relate to that. I feel that. I mean, you learn something new, even if it's like a new chord or something, and... It does kind of give you this this gift. I don't know.
0: That's really, I have a lot of respect for people oh. who, you know, are struggling with like a, some kind of like physical physical struggle or chronic disease or whatever, who can still find a way to cut through that and connect with some kind of creative output. That's hard, you know? Yeah. Good for him. He said yeah. they, I see that he was doing some kind of like, live show with his family on Instagram during the pandemic. Oh, really? Connecting with fans. That's cute. Yeah.
1: That's cool. Yeah, I have some friends who live in Chicago, and they've said that his sons have basically run the indie music scene in Chicago now. Oh, I love um, it. And that they just, you know, I think one of them, I think one of the sons, maybe his name is Spencer, he just took to playing the drums so quickly and he just, it's just like he was a natural talent for playing the drums and I think has played on some, some great records or something like that. I can't remember the, the details, but it's just really cool how much his love for music has been passed on to his children and I don't think it's intentional. It was just them on their own mm. finding that same path.
0: That's great. This sounds like a feel-good story. If you want all the drama, you do the Jerry Lee Lewis book. If you want to yeah, <laughs> <I'll> pick <laughs> yeah. me up, you read this book.
1: There's some really dark moments in the Jeff Tweedy book though as oh, well. Sure. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, it's still I mean, yeah, th- he married the love of his life. He did find out, you know, what was wrong with him so that he didn't have to self-medicate. I mean, when you're a musician, you don't have insurance, health insurance and now <laughs> yeah. he's successful and was yeah. able to like figure it out, but it was very interesting, and uh, I had no idea, which gave me even more respect for Jeff and Wilco and all of the other projects he's been part of. Oh, I just want to say, too, he just seems incredibly Mm self-aware. Like, the way he experiences everything and talks about everything, he just seems incredibly self-aware, always. Okay, number three. Another one that I'm still shocked is alive. Keith Richards. (laughs) The the book is called Life. It was first published in
0: 2010.
1: Just incredibly fascinating look of Keith Richards' life from beginning to late career. And even hearing him talking about music in such a passionate way, like the first time I heard Elvis Presley and how they found the blues and how he learned, how learning open chord tuning or open tuning really changed the game for him. And like every song after that was written in open tuning. (laughs) And
0: Hmm.
1: I mean, he opened, uh, yeah, he was like a choir boy and then discovered the blues and it just really took off. And, he, he talks about his drug use openly. He's experienced a great amount of loss as well with his losing his son. And uh, yeah, just also interesting how at every turn it was like the cops are always after the Rolling Stones. For what? You know, like <laughs> always after them, trying to get them in, in, other, in, in every turn, every city, every state, every country. What were they doing? They were playing rock and roll. Just playing rock and roll? <laughs>
0: ain't <laughs> a crime you know, baby.
1: Drugs drugs are there, but you know there oh, are yeah. many other acts <laughs> doing the same thing. It seems like Keith Richard is you know, we think of Mick Jagger as the kind of ladies man, you know. And everyone is like Keith does drugs. But he's seems very um like like an honorable dude. Like he just seems like an honest man, like a family man. He tried Staying with one woman the whole time as much as he could, even when she was going around his back, and he, he loves his family so much and try to do what he could for them, and I think that's just a side of Keith Richards that you never hear about.
2: Hmm.
1: So, what do you think the reading.
0: motivation of, of the book is? Does it feel like he's just he's just wanting to put it all out there? Does it have an air of like he feels misunderstood and trying to set the record straight? No,
1: I think it just sounds like. He's just telling stories about telling stories. You know, his life, yeah. Yeah, I don't think that there's a, any intention to twist a story to make it sound like he's this like perfect human or anything like that. But it is really interesting to hear about all those trials and tribulations that they have experienced as a band together. And this is another one that's extremely too long to read as an actual book. <laughs> And so I, I listened to the audiobook and half of it is uh, Johnny Depp reading it. Oh. The other half is wow. Keith Richards. Oh, so wow. at one point you're like, I can understand everything. And then suddenly <laughs> you're having to tune in a little bit to kind of understand <laughs> his gravelly British accent. That's funny.
2: Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: What's something in the book? Huh. What's something in the book that you learned about the stones for the first time? or about specifically Keith Richards?
1: Mm. Uh, Oh, so one thing that they were always doing was having to, they were booking these tiny studios that no one had heard of because they didn't want anyone to follow them there, but also the cops to know that they were in town recording stuff because they were, like I said, always, the cops were always after them. But they did play this one festival and this is kind of a famous story but i didn't know the true details around this so it was it was really interesting uh to read or to hear about it was the altamont speedway free festival and i think there was this i think they had the hells angels there to provide security and i at some point Someone gets stabbed, and it just turns into this big, like, disaster, crazy riot. Stabbings <laughs> will do that.
2: Isn't there? Isn't there a documentary about that?
1: Probably, but it's.
2: I think it's called. Is it called "Gimme Shelter"? Maybe I don't. I saw a documentary about that that subject. Oh yeah, because someone someone died. Yeah. At that show.
1: Yeah, yeah. Someone died. Someone was stabbed. It's remembered for this like incredible violence. But, yeah Yikes. like and lots of cars were stolen and there was like so much damaged property it's just a wild mm. festival but the way that i feel like the way that they were describing it um, i don't even think they actually got to pl- i don't remember no yeah they were the like last act i don't even think they actually got to play <laughs> No, maybe they did. I think it was like by the time they were getting on stage is when all of this drama started to happen. Anyways, learning about that was crazy. And to hear him talking about this event. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, which is kind of wild. Uh, lots of things like that happened to them. Uh, and also the many times that he got off scotch-free from whatever drug troubles he may, he may be oh. about to be caught for he always got out of it somehow i'm
0: sure he holds the record on that
1: yeah which was (laughs) was really fun to hear about but yeah i I highly recommend this book all right number two
2: i have uh sorry to cut you off i have a i have two side notes that relate to rolling stones keith richards uh, that relate to the books that i selected uh one is uh Prince actually was opening for the Rolling Stones at one point oh, during yeah. the Dirty Mind tour, and he was basically he left the tour because the uh, the audience was throwing stuff at him. Oh, they no. didn't like they didn't like his sound, but Rolling Stones loved his that album Dirty Mind, and they brought him on tour with them. And then the the audience just was not. <laughs> they did not. They weren't feeling <laughs> it. They were throwing like bottles oh, at no. him, and he and he and he and he like left. The whole band just left uh, the tour after that. Yeah, but the other the other little side note relates back to something that I read in 33 and the third book about Led Ladyland is that Keith Richards, one of his early girlfriends, his name was her name was Linda Keith. Do you know who? Yeah. She was she was one of the first people to become friends with Jimi Hendrix when he first arrived in London in like the mid 60s, and she also introduced him to everyone he needed him to know to get him into the London music rock scene and she gave him one of Keith's guitars and he just he just went, you know, he just did his thing after that. He sat in with like cream on stage and played with them and all just kinda went really fast rapidly after that his career took off. But Linda Keith was a big, a big uh, help for him oh, yeah. starting out. Interesting.
1: That's really cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay, so number two is the Beastie Boys book. From
2: 2018. Yo, B. May I help you? Yes, what's your name? Hello? Hello, man. You got Cookie Puss's number?
0: He's my supervisor. He'll help you.
1: Oh, my gosh. Can I tell you? This book, as soon as I read it, I became... I, I had an obsession with the Beastie Boys after I read it. And I just could not stop listening to the Beastie Boys and every influence that they mentioned in this book. So... It's basically a book, they're telling stories, but also there are kind of essays from other folks built into it, but they talk about their growth from when they were young punks to becoming, you know, one of the most uh, successful rap groups uh, of all time, and talks about their influence, uh, how they were influenced. And then also their influence on culture, which I think it was just so cool. So, so cool. They talk about um, Danceteria, that club in New York, and just like the music that was happening in New York around the 80s and the 90s. But I I feel like this book, like their music, someone's mentioned this before. it, It seems like the book is also samples like their music. Because of the <laughs> oh, nice. because of the essays and the little pieces that you get. I mean, there's a photo collection in the physical copy by Spike Jones and then there's also the Pulitzer Prize winner, Colson Whitehead, uh, who wrote the Underground Railroad book. He wrote uh Imagining oh, Yeah, nice. he wrote uh this whole like imagining of the Carvel cookie puss ice cream cake, <laughs> which that song is about, the cookie puss song. Which is their first single. It talks about You know, how they, when they were a punk band, which by the way, Beastie Boys, Beastie is an acronym for boys entering uh, anarchistic states toward internal excellence. (laughs) But they were a punk band. They had a girl drummer who, which by the way, she, uh, by the way, is the drummer for Luscious Jackson. She has an essay and talking about how she was kind of forced out uh, and they became this sort of—they became the people that they were mocking, these like kind of douchebag assholes, you know. And th- mm. and yeah, they regretted. I, that. I read that yeah. too. Yeah, and they regretted that, and they apologized. They wrote many songs, even addressing it after the fact. Uh, but it is kind of interesting how one of you know one of them ended up marrying a riot girl, right? Too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. This is the book by Michael Diamond? This is uh them, yeah, the Beastie Boys. So Mike D. Michael Diamond and um Adam Ad Rock. Yes, Ad Rock, thank you. Yeah. Mike D, Ad Rock, um, and of course, you know, R.I.P. Um I don't know who Yeah. That's... Uh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um But yeah, they definitely talk about Adam Yauch uh and how you know the book, the the whole book it seems like almost a tribute to him in some way so good
0: the book is laid out really cool too it's got like yeah clubs and bars it's like a snapshot of the whole area the record stores restaurants mm.
1: yeah so that's the physical copy what's really cool is if you listen to the audiobook cuz i listened to the audiobook first and there's a list like a stellar list stacked list of Huge celebrities, just the coolest celebrities reading sections of the book. Nas, Steve Buscemi, Kim Gordon. Oh, nice. Uh, oh, nice. Yeah, That's Jarvis cool. Cocker, Snoop Dogg, um, LL Cool J, <laughs> Jeff Tweedy also, Spike Jones, Chloe Sevigny, Like a lot of really amazing people reading sections of this book in the audiobook. So I heard the audiobook is great, but then I was like, oh, well, crap. Now I want the physical copy too because it has all those photos. But yeah, get both. Get both.
0: <laughs> yeah, I might. Yeah, this looks great. I'm just looking at one of the photos in the front of the book and just how young they were.
1: They were so cute. They were so young. Yeah. They weren't even out of high school when, they, wrote, uh, when they did uh, Lessons to Ill.
0: What a cool oh. place and a cool of, time high to be coming of age. You know, yeah. in this like cultural <laughs> explosion.
1: Seriously, at the very beginning of hip hop. That's crazy. So cool. And also, they're the only one of only 5 rap groups in uh, rock and roll hall of fame
0: there's a contribution from amy Poehler. what is she what is she <laughs> attrib- oh yeah she
1: does <laughs> she does like a review of their music videos or something oh, okay yeah okay that's cool all right yeah i made a playlist of their dance terrier references cuz it's so good <laughs> so good last one drum roll from 1996 Please kill me. (laughs) (laughs) The oral history of punk. And basically it's like 400 pages of interview segments with no real context. (laughs) It's like... Uh, you have D.D. Ramon telling a snippet. Then you have Iggy Pop telling a snippet. And it's just those people who lived in that time and were, and were going through this wild ride again of, of the punk movement and just kind of like talking about its creation and witnessing it and, you know, people dying and the destruction that they had on their own lives doing drugs and just, Drunk all the time. There's a story of how Jim Morrison would take a bunch of pills and then he would go to the bar and order like five screwdrivers, but then he wouldn't want to leave them. So when he had to pee, he would just unzip and go on the floor. And then, of course, because he's Jim Morrison, women would go. Under the bar and do things that I'm not going to mention here. But, like, it's it's just (laughs) wild stories like that and how Iggy Pop got the clap from Nico. And it's just (laughs) the craziest stories. Highly recommend. (laughs) It's so good. Yeah, Lou Reed, (laughs) such an asshole, Uh, you learn. Uh, Most of them actually are assholes. Patty Smith, weirdo. Uh, (laughs) It's just, yeah, it's just crazy. It's so good. It should be required reading if you like music. Even if you don't know all these people.
0: Oh, okay. Well, I have my assignment. I've, <laughs> I've saved it. Did you listen to, listen to this one or did you have the physical book?
1: I actually read this one. Yeah. I actually read this one. A lot of good, good and pictures is, and my things. Copy, yeah, great pictures. My copy is destroyed, like pages actually falling out of it because okay. I constantly reference it. Hopefully
0: no pictures of that Morrissey story.
1: Oh, no. No, okay. no. Yeah. <laughs>
2: I have a oral history book that's similar. It's just it's just, it's about uh, jean Michel Basquiat and uh, and Ooh. New York in the late seventies, early eighties. But there's lots of like music groups um, kind of crossover into the book as well. Uh, mainly like post punk bands. It's a, it's a great little little book. Um, yeah,
1: cool. I want to read that. I will say there's one person who stands out as being really nice and down-to-earth and super respectable of all of these wild punk rockers, and that's Blondie. Oh, yeah. Debbie Harry. <laughs> oh, yeah. I could see that. She seemed like a good girl. She seemed like she was like really in it for her career and making all the right decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sounded like, it seemed like everyone liked her, hmm. too. But...
0: So she wasn't messy. She didn't spill any messy she tea. She wasn't in the book. messy. Okay, good for her. She, w-
1: she Love, wasn't messy.
2: She loved Debbie Harry. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: That's it. That's my wow. list.
0: Tara, I knew you would deliver the intense, high octane story <laughs> books for sure. Yeah. That's a killer list. I need,
1: I need to read more. Pandemic really puts a damper on wanting to read books, though. Really? Yeah. Just like don't have the mental capacity to read books. Yeah,
0: right that's now, true. Because like, like, like you would expect that's so totally counterintuitive because it's like, oh, we're inside. We have all this time. But then you're just like, right. uh, yeah, I'm that way with actually yeah. making music. I made very little music. Oh, yeah. During Same. quarantine. I was really ashamed of that.
1: Yeah. The one time we really had to ourselves to do that and just, you just like, I can't. Can't get down there at the computer. Well, especially because everything was at the computer during the pandemic. Right, working from home. Exactly. Even hanging out with friends over Zoom. Like everything was over the computer.
0: We were computered out.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, we've got the energy now. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I seem to have the opposite effect on me, but um, I did work on a lot of music during 2020, specifically. Did you make a yeah. lot of just music? I was just like, indoors all the time.
0: I don't know. I admire that about you. You always seem to be working on on some new project or something. You've got that discipline. I need to work on that.
1: <laughs> yeah, me too.
0: Me too. Speaking I'm of, Chris. <laughs> speaking of, if we want to hear what you've been up to, like what's what's the best way to <laughs> check out your music online right now?
2: Well, I would say um Bandcamp. Bandcamp is the best way to um check out my stuff um, i um just under Christvo cool. bandcamp do
0: you stream i know you do like mixcloud you release mixcloud mixes sometimes
2: mm. i do i have a i have a sound a soundcloud page as well um, that has lots of like streaming music that i've kind of released and then dj mixes on there um, yeah just under Christovo. nice rock soundcloud yeah
1: well, I think it's time we should close the store. We've been here for quite a while, but we should restock the employee recommendation shelf. Yes. Natalie, what would you put on the shelf for today?
0: Okay, so this one's going to be very niche, but <laughs> <laughs> this last week I discovered that Square Enix has, has a YouTube channel called Square Enix Music Channel where they've put most of their soundtracks to all of their incredible uh, JRPG video games. So that means all of the Final Fantasies, All the Chrono series, Chrono Trigger, Chrono Cross, the Saga, the Mana games. Um, They've got some like lo-fi mixes in there as well. So if you're a huge fan of JRPGs like me and you miss that music, hit up the Square Enix music channel on YouTube.
1: Very niche. Very niche. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I am going to recommend another book. I'm actually reading this book uh, right now. Um, It's called A Scene... A Scene in Between, Tripping Through the Fashions of UK Indie Music between 1980 and 1988. And, yeah, it features a lot of bands of that era, like Shoegaze bands, um, My Bloody Valentine, Jesus and Mary Chain, The Pastels, The Vaselines. Talks about kind of their scenes when they were up and coming, I guess, in that time frame, and also just kind of a look into what – what did they look like? What were they wearing? The culture of this, this scene um, of UK Indie. I highly recommend. Lots of cool pictures. Cool. Chris, do you want to put something on the shelf?
2: Yeah, I have a book as well uh it's uh called chris chris stein negative it's uh i'm a big fan of blondie and it's like a collection of uh his photography that he took during the 80s nice with blondie and debbie harry little short stories about just being in new york and running into different celebrities like david bowie um there's lots of different little cool little stories in this book, um, great photography, of course. So
1: cool! Oh, cool. yeah! I'm to buy it. that one too. Gosh, we have. We're gonna be we very have broke. So much reading to do. <laughs> <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get out of here and uh, go to the bookstore after. This. Yeah,
0: seriously. Thanks for stopping by, Chris. It was great having you.
1: Yeah. Thanks.
2: Oh, uh, thanks for having me.
1: All right. Happy trails. All right. See you
0: next Bye. time.
1: Bye. Record Store Society is hosted by Natalie White and Tara Davies. If you'd like to contact the show, visit our website at Recordstoresociety.com. Or you can find us on all your favorite social media sites with the handle at Record Store Society.